Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. New York City has an extraordinary collection of historic homes, several dating back to the city's colonial period. Stately, majestic mansions graced with federal-style furnishings recalling English or French influences. It's all quite graceful. From Hamilton Grange to Gracie Mansion, from the Morris Jumel Mansion to the Merchant's House, These were the homes of great individuals who founded New York. But there is another historic home, located in the borough of Queens, which presents a different narrative of greatness. From its blue lacquered kitchen cabinets evoking a jet-age future, to living room shelves filled with exotic bric-a-brac from foreign lands, From its chandelier in the bedroom, catching the reflections of light from the silver mylar curtains, to a mirrored bathroom with gold features, evoking the flamboyance of Elvis Presley or Liberace. What other historic home in America has 1960s state-of-the-art speakers behind silver wallpaper or a cozy den decked out in reel-to-reels and a secret archive of scrapbooks and audio recordings? Welcome to one of the most unique places in New York City, the home of one of the world's greatest musicians and his wife who helped secure his legacy. The Bowery Boys episode 381. Welcome to the home of Louis and Lucille Armstrong. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with the story of a music landmark in the heart of Queens, located on what some might consider a quiet residential street. However, it's only a 20-minute walk to City Field, the home of the Mets, and to Flushing Meadows Corona Park, the site of two past World's Fairs. Now, as to Corona, there are a few theories about the origin of the neighborhood's name. Corona, meaning crown, suggests that this area was once considered the crown of Queens County. In the 19th century, the area was a popular destination for lovers of horse racing. Thousands took the Flushing Railroad to visit races at the Fashion Racecourse, which was on the site of today's Corona Plaza. Fashion, by the way, was the name of a very popular horse. But in the early 20th century, Most, unfortunately, knew Corona because of the massive ash dump along the water, made famous by F. Scott Fitzgerald in his book, The Great Gatsby. Thanks to Robert Moses, that ash dump would be transformed into Flushing Meadows Park in the 1930s. 
but the house that I'll be speaking about today was constructed in the year 1910, when those mountains of ash still rose nearby along the salt marshes of Flushing Bay. The house was located, well, why don't I let Mr. Armstrong situate the listener? My address is 3456 107th Street, Corona, C-O-R-O-N-A, New York, United States of America. Louis Armstrong was one of the most influential and, during his lifetime, one of the most popular musicians in American history. He's one of the founding fathers of jazz music. Like jazz itself, Louis Armstrong was born in New Orleans. In 1943, Armstrong moved to this house in Corona, Queens. Jazz by this time was now the most popular and most innovative form of music in America. It was also to be one of America's most dynamic imports to the world, in no small part because of Louis Armstrong, who would be nicknamed the Ambassador of Jazz. And he had other nicknames too. The world knew him as Satchmo, but his friends called him Pops. This is the story of how Armstrong became a legend and how a legend became a New Yorker. And his move here, his life in Queens from 1943 until his death in the summer of 1971 is all thanks to one woman. And this show is also about her. She not only preserved the legacy of an American original, a man who just happened to be her husband, but she also developed a musical archive that would long outlast the two of them. Lucille Wilson was born in the Bronx on January 13, 1914. During the Great Depression, young Lucille went straight to work after high school to help support her family. Despite her mother's initial objections, Wilson took to the stage. She became an in-demand dancer on the stages of Harlem in the early 1930s, when the neighborhood was thriving during the Jazz Age as a district of nightclubs and ballrooms. She distinguished herself at the Alhambra Ballroom and was soon hired to dance at one of Harlem's most famous clubs, the Cotton Club. Like most of the major hotspots in Harlem's so-called Jungle Alley, the Cotton Club featured black entertainers performing for all white audiences, and the lavish venue was decorated like a plantation in the Old South. By the time Lucille began dancing at the Cotton Club, major black entertainers like Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway had made the place world famous. She also would have known another young dancer, and a former Brooklyn resident named Lena Horne. Lucille was a distinctive presence at the Cotton Club, and not simply for her talent, as to not disturb its downtown all-white clientele. The club had previously hired only light-skinned black women as dancers. Wilson was the club's only dark-skinned dancer, and she managed some impressive reviews for a member of the dance line. One critic wrote, quote, the most important contribution to the city's ha-cha-cha is in the presence of an obscure youngster in the chorus by the name of Lucille Wilson. 
She went on to dance in Broadway shows such as Flying Colors and Lou Leslie's Blackbirds, following the latter show's run on the West End in London. She returned to America to work again at the Cotton Club, which had then relocated to Midtown Manhattan. She was a radiant presence in the chorus, sharing the stage with such artists as Bill Bojangles Robinson. Newspaper columnist Billy Rowe called her the brown sugar of the Cotton Club. In October of 1939, Bojangles was again at the Cotton Club on a double bill with Louis Armstrong, who was passing through New York after a vigorous cross-country tour with his band. As always, Armstrong was extremely busy, making radio appearances and even preparing for a new Broadway show called Swinging the Dream, a jazz-infused version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. But he wasn't so preoccupied that he didn't notice that beautiful standout in the chorus line. Lewis was transfixed by Lucille. When he found out that she had made homemade cookies and was selling them on the side for a little extra spending money, he bought all of them from her, and the two headed up to Harlem and gave them all out to children. Lewis and his band worked the Cotton Club for several months, a welcome respite from the road, and Lewis and Lucille grew close. They were in love by the time Armstrong went back out on the road, with Lucille sometimes in tow. But they seemed to be the happiest in New York. The record producer George Avakian had once visited Lucille's apartment with Lewis. He recalls, quote, Lewis was on the stoop of the building, and he was pirouetting with his arms out. And he was saying, Oh, my darling, my darling. I thought, isn't this beautiful? This man is in love, unquote. Lewis and Lucille were finally married on October 12, 1942, while passing through St. Louis. Lucille Armstrong loved her world-famous husband, but she did not love the road, the hassle, the discrimination, and the rootlessness. She vowed to provide her husband with something he had not truly enjoyed for many, many years, a home of his own. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's one you all can sing with us when the saints go marching in. Before his home in Corona, Queens, Louis Armstrong liked to say that he lived in Chicago, but that his true home was New Orleans. He was born there on August 4th, 1901, and grew up in the neighborhood of Storyville, New Orleans' notorious red-light district. Alongside the brothels here were saloons and honky-tonks, where black and Creole musicians took great liberties to reinterpret and reimagine aspects of blues, ragtime, and marching band music in a sound that would later come to be known as jazz. But there was no name for it yet when young Lewis first heard it. Outside the rowdy Funky Butt Hall, which happened to be situated right across the street from his school. According to author Terry Teachout, quote, No child in short pants would ever have been allowed inside to watch the dancers bump, grind, drink, and fight. So Lewis stood on the sidewalk and listened, peering through a crack in the window of the rickety building. 
He soon learned to recognize the styles of Buddy Bolden, Joe Oliver, and Bunk Johnson, the best black cornet players in town. It was the fire and the endurance of Oliver that stirred him most powerfully, then and later. New Orleans was also the home of Homer Plessy, a Creole man born during the Civil War who was arrested for refusing to leave a whites-only railroad car. In 1896, five years before Lewis was born, the Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson enshrined separate but equal as the rule of the land. And Jim Crow laws now governed life in New Orleans, a city where both black and Creoles once enjoyed a more integrated society. The Big Easy was now in turmoil, an important context to the formation of jazz music. On New Year's Eve of 1912, Armstrong was arrested for possessing his stepfather's gun and firing it into the air, landing him into the military-like quarters of the colored waif's home. But as fate would have it, the home had a marching band, and Lewis was soon the lead on cornet, a brass instrument similar to a trumpet. He fell so passionately in love with making music that he didn't want to leave the marching band when his detention was over. But it was in 1919, as a musician for riverboat excursions of the Mississippi River, that Armstrong flourished. On these long-distance steamers, Lewis learned to entertain, mixing personality with musical craftsmanship. He was becoming a master of the form at the precise moment that jazz became big. The first recognized jazz record, Livery Stable Blues, by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, had been released just two years before. In post-war America, jazz became a way of life. In 1919, a newspaper in Lima, Ohio, published this editorial, quote, A Baptist minister maintains that jazz, contrary to the common view, is not at all confined to music. In short, he complains, it is a jazz age. The boys come home from the war expecting to find a spirit of religion and find only the universal spirit of jazz." Unquote. In 1922, Joe Oliver, better known to his fans as King Oliver, brought Louis Armstrong to Chicago to perform in Oliver's Creole Jazz Band at the Lincoln Gardens. It was here that Lewis became a star. He was a force of nature. He had an extraordinary talent for improvisation on a frequency above other musicians. He could play around with the outer reaches of melody in a way that imbued compositions with drama and joy. With a completely original ear for rhythm, he more or less invented swing music and in the process popularized solo musical breakouts and future jazz arrangements. That was paired with his immense power and control, evidenced in his very first recordings with Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. The most important person in Louis Armstrong's life during the 1920s and 30s 
was his wife, Lil Harden Armstrong, an accomplished jazz pianist who essentially became his manager, stylist, and promoter. In 1924, with her encouragement, Armstrong first came to New York to play with Fletcher Henderson's band at the Roseland Ballroom in Midtown Manhattan. Henderson was a brilliant, up-and-coming band leader, but Armstrong could not quite get used to the stuffy formality of it all. Armstrong had also just started singing on stage at out-of-town gigs. Henderson did not think the clientele at the Roseland would appreciate his characteristic gravelly vocal, featured here in a later recording from 1926. Lil brought him back to Chicago, where they performed on stage regularly together, although they would eventually separate in 1931 and later divorce. During the late 1920s, Armstrong also made regular appearances in the recording studio, leading ensembles the Hot Five and later the Hot Seven. For the first time, Lewis was front and center, and his improvisational style captured on these recordings remains some of the most influential jazz records ever recorded. For each record, he received a flat payment of $50, no royalties. Soon, Armstrong, expanding his talents to the trends of the day, performed with larger bands as big band jazz music caught fire in the late 1920s and flourished throughout the Great Depression. He returned to New York in 1929 to perform at Connie's Inn, owned by the bootlegger Connie Immerman and his two brothers one of Harlem's mini nightclub venues, which comprised that district nicknamed Jungle Alley. Spots where wealthy white downtown audiences could enjoy black entertainers. Armstrong appeared in a popular review here called Hot Chocolates. It was so successful that a more elaborate version of the show appeared on Broadway at the Hudson Theater. Believe it or not, Armstrong appeared in both of these shows racing uptown after the Broadway curtain call to start the late night version at Connie's. It was with hot chocolates, according to writer Ricky Riccardi in his book, Heart Full of Rhythm, that Armstrong crossed over, becoming more than a jazz artist, but a pop star beloved by black and white audiences alike. And he did it more or less with one song. At first he was meant only to perform it from the orchestra pit, but it became so popular that every night he crawled out of the pit, took center stage, and sang his big number, Ain't Misbehavin'. No one talking all by myself, no one walking, I'm happy on the show, babe. Ain't misbehavin', Throughout the 1930s, Louis Armstrong played clubs cross-country with his band and notably tours through the South and even a celebrated gig in his old hometown of New Orleans at a club called Suburban Gardens, located in an old sugar plantation. Sometimes he was greeted with joyous throngs, as befits a major popular star. In other towns, he was denied accommodations and meals because of his race. 
harassed by law enforcement, and at one point in Memphis, he and members of his band were arrested for refusing to leave a luxury bus that had been chartered specifically for them. It was almost like the more popular he got, the more nomadic he became. He was constantly on the go. He appeared on radio shows and recorded dozens and dozens of records. He went to Los Angeles and made several film appearances, such as Pennies from Heaven and the Mae West film Every Day is a Holiday. He performed in England in 1932, then the following year launched a full-length European tour. And through all of this, Lewis honed a very particular stage persona. Warm, personable, hilarious, kind, but one that didn't make his largely white audiences too uncomfortable, leaving himself open later to criticism from black critics, who saw some of this shtick, especially the film roles, as demeaning to his black audiences. Then there were the mobsters. During the years of prohibition, organized crime often controlled the clubs. During one disagreement between Arnold's manager and the owners of Connie's Inn, a mobster pulled a gun on Armstrong, according to his own recollection, and demanded he return to Harlem to perform. Frightening, but the incident enthralled the press. One newspaper declared, quote, gang threats make cornet player tremble in rhythm. Flash forward to the first time that Louis Armstrong saw Lucille Wilson on the stage at the Cotton Club, and then to wedding day, October 12, 1942, Louis Armstrong and his new bride, Lucille, and to a decision that she made to improve their lives. In the words of Lucille Armstrong, And I told Louis, let's get a house. Because I was raised in a house, always, you know. I've always lived in the suburbs. So I asked Louis, and he said, what do you want a house for? We'll be traveling. Uh, here's a hotel room, and I wasn't about to be cooped up in a hotel room. And so I said, this guy doesn't know what the house is all about. I bought the house myself and didn't tell him. So I'd been, I had had the house eight months before I told Louis. Eight whole months. So finally I told him two weeks before we were to go back to New York and I told him, I said, Pops, I got something to tell you. So he said, well, now what have you done now? I said, well, I haven't done anything. That I, don't, I don't think you're going to be unhappy about what I've done. So I said, yes, I bought a house in a little town called Corona. And he had never heard of Corona and I had come from Corona. Now he said, well, how, how did you pay for it? You didn't ask me for any money. I said, well, you have to remember that I had been working for 13 years. I had a little money saved up and so when I approached you about a house and you were so down on it, I didn't ask you, and I just took my money and I put the down payment on the house, and I've been keeping the payments up. So he said, you have? I said, yes. I said, but now that you know about the house, you can take the payments over. <laughs> up next, a visit to Lewis and Lucille's wonderful home in Corona. 
You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. This episode is brought to you by the New York Historical Society and their new podcast, For the Ages. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast series exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Historian Ted Widmer will tell you about the two 13th Amendments, one for slavery and one against, that still exist. You'll also learn what he would have asked Lincoln during the 13-day trip from Springfield, Illinois to Washington, D.C. for his inauguration. Did you know the Nazis copied the United States in the 1930s because they thought we'd perfected the caste system? Isabel Wilkerson compares the U.S., India, and Germany and discusses all the missed opportunities due to the United States' dehumanization process of slavery over 246 years and 12 generations. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss examines declarations of war and why presidents turned to resolutions instead after 1942. Did you know that nine years of war in Vietnam was caused by a congressional resolution based on an incident that LBJ knew never happened? That's For the Ages, hosted by David M. Rubenstein. Available on Apple and Spotify. New episodes every week. At home in Kroner, Long Island, New York. February 26, 1956. February 6th. Correction. February 6, 1926. I've said that we have a Lucy and she's fixed. 1956. Well, <laughs> pardon me, folks. Lucy, you have messed with my eye, you know. Last week, I took the 7 train out to the 103rd Street Corona Plaza station, just a couple stops from City Field, to a nice residential block on 107th Street. My destination was a modest three-story brick-covered house. Only a brick wall, concealing a spacious garden, suggested anything out of the ordinary about this house, until you stepped through the garage which isn't a garage at all, at least not anymore, but a gift shop and a welcome center where visitors are introduced to the story of the house's prior occupants. Regina Bain, the executive director at the Louis Armstrong House and Museum, offered me a formal introduction. So we are in the home of Louis and Lucille Armstrong. This is the home that they lived in for 30 years. Lucille Armstrong bought this home because of when, after... 
Lewis and Lucille got married, they went on tour and it was grueling. And Lucille said, "Mm, I don't think that life is for me. And she wanted a home. And so she bought this home with her own money. She was a cotton club dancer. She had worked as an artist for years. And so she saved and she bought this home. And so that's where we are now. The house was constructed in 1910, a dozen years after the new borough of Queens became a part of the city of Greater New York. By the time Lucille bought the house in 1943, it had become a vibrant middle-class neighborhood. Adriana Carrillo, the director of guest experiences at the Louis Armstrong House and Museum, explains. Yes, so we know that there were a lot of Italian and Irish families. Uh, We can still see that in the neighborhood uh, a little farther down. But in the story of Selma Geraldo, their neighbor, we know that they were one of the first black families that moved into the neighborhood. Lewis leaves a manuscript that he writes uh, around 1970, and he describes already a more diverse neighborhood. He witnesses kind of the, the waves of Hispanic people moving into the neighborhood. So he talks about going to a Hispanic barbershop. But the neighborhood changed, but it was always diverse, and it was always welcoming of owners of different backgrounds. Louis Armstrong was one of the most famous black entertainers in America by the 1940s. Yet he did not feel comfortable in an environment where he would be constantly reminded of his fame. Lucille became aware of that on an excursion into Manhattan one day. Yes, she took Louis to see these townhouses and uh, Louis just did not like the life he could see uh, he was going to live in, in, in a place like Manhattan. He loved the privacy that he had here. And it was not that he was not well-known because he was all over the TV, but he could take a walk to his barber shop on his own. The sense of community, knowing the families, the names, that was Louis. Uh, Lucille got it right. Regina and Adriana led me upstairs into the house where we sat around the Armstrongs' living room. For the interview, a vision in mid-century home furnishing with paintings on the wall of Lewis and Lucille, a beautiful white piano that had been owned by Lewis's ex-wife, Lil, and a shelf lined with collectibles from their international travels. We are sitting in Lewis and Lucille's living room. We are looking at incredible textured wallpaper that has these diamond patterns, almost hemp-like. It's like nothing else. You, you can rub your, your hand over and feel um, the ridges. And some people say you can even smell the smoke that's still in the wallpaper. So Lewis and Lucille were smokers. And this is the wallpaper that was here when they lived here. And there's a feeling, I think, that comes in this space because most of the things that are here were here when they were alive. And they touched them, they used them, their spirit is in them in different ways. And you feel that, people feel that when they move through the house. As you explore the house, going from room to room, you'll discover some very magnificent, but sometimes flamboyant choices. The kitchen is a stunningly bright aqua blue, very much in a futuristic 1950s jet age style, befitting a home situated between two major airports, JFK and LaGuardia. 
The bedroom is adorned in a silver wallpaper with silver mylar curtains delicately reflecting the light from the chandelier. The bathroom with its mirrored walls, clamshell sink, and golden features feels like it was designed by Zsa Zsa Gabor. But this isn't Graceland. The interior design has a livable at-home feel with attractive global-inspired decor, which I think you could describe as being maybe on the edge of eccentric. The Louis Armstrong house isn't a temple to his accomplishments, but rather a preservation of a place where he felt most at ease. We know that Louis was a multimillionaire megastar movie star when they were here. But when Lucille talks about him, she says she did. He didn't really like the glitz and the glamour. He liked when he when he talked with someone, he wanted to talk with them forever and invite them over and sit down and have food with them. And this was the kind of house that allowed for that to have people over. Lucille herself tells a remarkable story of the first time Lewis saw the house, and it really encapsulates his unpretentious nature from an archive interview with Lucille. About six o'clock in the morning, he calls. His train had just come in. And he says, I'm at the station. How will I get out there? I said, you just take a taxi. Every cab driver knows how to get out to Queens and Corona. So he said, okay, Mom. So I want you to fix breakfast. I, and he told me what he wanted. It only takes a half hour by car to where I live from New York. And at six o'clock in the morning, it'd take a little less. But an hour passed, an hour and 45 minutes, and I'm worried to death. And then finally I look out the window and Louis sitting out, he's getting out of the cab. I don't know how long he'd been out standing out there, but he and the cab driver were standing across the street from the house. Louis' arms were on his hips and he's looking up at the house. And you know how Louis used to sway from side to side all the time? And he's swaying from side to side looking up at the house. And all these beautiful pearly teeth all showing and I opened the window and I said why don't you come why don't you come on in this house how long have you been standing out there so uh, he came in and he brought the cab driver with him so I asked him I said how, why are you so lazy the cab driver got lost of all the cab drivers where he gets one that doesn't know how to get to Corona never heard of it and they're riding around for hours so he tells the cab driver, I said, man, you better come into this pad. He said, see, this is the first time I'm seeing it, so we might as well inspect it together. You know, so they went, I gave him a cook's tour through the house, and he made the cab driver have uh, breakfast with him. But I've never been able to move Louis from that place once he got in that place. For Louis Armstrong, his life in Corona was his chance to catch his breath from an evolving career unlike any other. Tastes in jazz music changed after World War II, away from that big band ballroom style to more intimate settings. And Armstrong would conform with the times. On May 17, 1947, he performed for a sold-out crowd at Town Hall in Midtown. For many in the audience, it was a more stripped-down sound than they were used to, with Lewis playing in a smaller ensemble. But for Lewis, it was simply a return to form from his days with the Hot Five. (laughs) 
You could say that because of Armstrong's decade-long influence on the development of jazz, there were more artists now who could keep up with him. His new ensemble, a revolving roster of artists called Louis Armstrong and his All-Stars, together they toured the world as newer American sounds like rock and roll and rhythm and blues entranced younger audiences, jazz became more of an esteemed affair, and Louis Armstrong became its international ambassador. But in another sense, he also became something more than a jazz icon. He sang popular standards with Ella Fitzgerald during the 1950s. He continued to star in Hollywood films such as High Society with his good friend Bing Crosby. And he was on the radio any chance he could get. But in achieving mainstream stardom, jazz's elder statesman opened himself up for further criticism from younger black musicians who thought his hammy, eager-to-please style failed to evolve past the racial stereotypes of the vaudeville era. By the late 1950s, when jazz music had, in fact, been redefined for the smoky jazz club and coffee houses by such artists as Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and Charles Mingus, Armstrong found himself on the outside of the genre he helped develop. Which is why his home in Corona was such a restful and welcoming place for him comfortable among his admiring friends and neighbors. That man was like a Pied Piper in my neighborhood. On one night as we used a bus, the bus would pick us up in front of our door. The kids would come, you'd find them coming out of holes like little mice. Satchmo, Satchmo, let me hold your horn, let me carry your horn. You getting ready to go away? And uh, all when we came back in town, Louis would walk to the barbershop, and he'd have droves of kids behind him, just following him, you know. In his later years, Armstrong would spend more time up in his wood-paneled office, with a terrace where he would sometimes play his horn, which you could hear from blocks away. In 1964, if not for the BQE, perhaps they would have even heard it on the grounds of the World's Fair. But what fascinated Armstrong the most was archiving, not only his own experiences, but those of others. He was always obsessed with this. Here in Lewis's office, you'll find reel-to-reels and other equipment where Lewis would capture his own thoughts and the experiences of others. He wanted to just talk with people, and this is a home that allowed for that. And he had the insight to be humble, yes, but also to know his worth and to know that his words were going to be valued in years to come, and so to record them. So he's going to talk with the guy on the street, but he's going to record it <laughs> because he knows that conversation um, is meaningful for the future. Lewis had an extraordinary personal collection. His scrapbooks, photographs, audio recordings of all different types, and a record collection which would rival anyone's on the modern-day Brooklyn audiophile scene. All of these materials are the basis of the Louis Armstrong collection today. While his health began deteriorating in the early 1960s, that slowed but did not in any way stop Armstrong from cultivating his personal collections. Then something really weird happened, and it involves Carol Channing. 
The Jerry Herman musical Hello, Dolly! opened on Broadway in January of 1964. Armstrong's longtime manager, Joe Glazer, who had connections to the show, asked Lewis to record a version of the title song as sort of a promotion for the show. According to the New York Daily News, quote, Back in his Corona Queens home, Pops was walking the living room in carpet slippers, listening to the demo and deciding what he wanted to do with it. It was eventually released as a single, which, believe it or not, became the number one song in America in February of 1964 and stayed there for nine weeks. And in doing so, he knocked the Beatles from the top spot of the Billboard charts. Hello, darling. This is Louis Dollar. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. You looking swell, Dollar. I can't tell, Dollar. You still growing, you still growing, you still going strong. He was 62 years old, the oldest artist to ever chart a number one single, a record which stands to this day. And he continued to record throughout the 1960s, including another Broadway show tune, Cabaret, and of course, on the A side of that single, What a Wonderful World, in 1967. He was known as the ambassador of jazz, although you could also call him the archivist of jazz, and a pop cultural force unlike any other. He never really stopped. The year after recording What a Wonderful World, he was admitted into Beth Israel Hospital for heart and kidney trouble. After that, he would never be the same. And although he did try to return to the stage, it was much too great an effort. In the late winter of 1971, Armstrong once again returned to the stage for what would be his final time, a two-week engagement at the Waldorf Astoria's Empire Room. From a newspaper column that March, quote, Louis Armstrong blew his famous horn when he opened at the Waldorf Empire Room, though it took so much of his strength that he went to bed between shows. His wife said that he had been in bed for much of the month resting, so he could blow his trumpet while performing with his all-stars. Louis Armstrong died at his home in Corona, Queens on July 6, 1971, and his funeral was held right around the corner at Corona Congregational Church. Today, he's buried at Flushing Cemetery. Music lovers mourned and tributes were played in his honor around the world. Quote, If anybody was Mr. Jazz, it was Lewis, said Duke Ellington. He was the epitome of jazz and always will be. He is what I call an American standard, an American original. Some of you young folks been saying to me, Hey, Pops, what you mean? What a wonderful world. How about all them walls all over the place? You call them wonderful? And how about hunger and pollution? They ain't so wonderful either. But how about listening to old Pops for a minute? Seems to me it ain't the world that's so bad, but what we are doing to it, and all I'm saying is, and see what a wonderful world 
it would be if only we'd give it a chance. Love, baby, love. That's the secret. Yeah. If lots more of us loved each other, we'd solve lots more problems. And man, this world would be a guesser. That's why old Pops keeps saying. But Lewis's story would endure, and that is, for the most part, thanks to Lucille. And one of the things that I love that she did was to respond to all of the condolence letters. So she and Phoebe Jacobs from the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation wrote personal letters to the tons of people who wrote to Louis Armstrong and to her for condolences. And she did that in Armstrong's legacy because Armstrong wrote people back. He wrote letters. He loved to write. And I think of that as as kind of the, the start of what it means to preserve a legacy, which is to walk in the footsteps and to live the values. Louis Armstrong would have responded when people wrote to him. So she responded to people when they wrote to her. And I love that as, as the beginning. In the last years of his life, the couple set up the Louis Armstrong Education Foundation, a grant program supporting musicians and jazz education. In 1973, Lucille championed the renaming of the Singer Bowl, which was an old stadium in Flushing Meadows Park, becoming the Louis Armstrong Memorial Stadium. It was then heavily renovated for the U.S. Open. This stadium was demolished in 2016, but a new one named Louis Armstrong Stadium has been hosting U.S. Open matches since 2018. But it was her own home that she made with Lewis here in Corona that would become one of her central missions. Thanks to her efforts, the house was named a National Historic Landmark in 1976. When Lucille died in 1983, she willed the house to the city of New York. And since 1987, it's been administered by Queens College. The following year, 1988, it was made a New York City landmark, According to the Landmarks Conservancy, quote, the house is a gem frozen in time as if the Armstrongs have just stepped out. In 2003, the house opened to the public, becoming one of the most unusual and most festive historic house tours in New York City. But by the summer of 2022, the neighborhood will look a little different. We are building a new Armstrong Center right across the street. It's a 14,000 square foot state-of-the-art building. And it's going to have a jazz cabaret in the back. So 75 seats in intimate space where contemporary artists from Wynton Marsalis and Jason Moran to the artists down the block can have a space to perform and in the legacy of Louis Armstrong. So we're really excited about the artistic excellence. So there's a lot There's a lot happening. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about it. You know who would like that, I think? Louis Armstrong. I think so, <laughs> Don't too. Don't you think? <laughs> wow. It's like, let's get out there and play. That's my story, folks. I guess I'm stuck with it. I usually say nice things also about human beings if they deserve it. I never want to be any more than I am 
And what I don't have, I don't need it anywho. I've always loved and I always lived a normal life, which I appreciate very much. And I've always loved everybody, still do. A big thanks to Regina Bain and Adriana Carrillo from the Louis Armstrong House and Museum for sitting down with me for this show and giving me a lovely tour of the house. And a special thanks to Ricky Riccardi, Director of Research Collections for the museum and author of two great Armstrong books, Heart Full of Rhythm and What a Wonderful World. The audio clips of Lewis and Lucille speaking on the show today were all provided by Ricky on behalf of the Lewis Armstrong House. I'd like to also dedicate this show to Terry Teachout, the critic and writer who published an excellent biography of Louis Armstrong in 2009 called Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong. Terry Teachout passed away on January 13th of this year, 2022. Visit our website, barryboyshistory.com, for images of Louis and Lucille, pictures from my visit to the house, and information on the music that you heard throughout the show today. I'll also have additional sources and a few more podcast recommendations from our back catalog on music history from this period. Now, over on our spinoff podcast, The Gilded Gentleman, uh, this is a big month. Host Carl Raymond is actually going weekly for the month of February and has a few shows that I think will definitely interest you. The History of Ladies Mile, uh, a little peek into the world of spiritualism, and the story of Ward McAllister, who is basically the man who helped craft Gilded Age High Society with Mrs. Carolyn Astor. And speaking of the Gilded Age, Tom is, of course, over there on the HBO podcast while I do this recording, sharing all sorts of interesting things about New York City history. So please check him out on the official Gilded Age podcast, available on the same podcast players that you find this show, and of course, where you'll also find The Gilded Gentleman. Thank all of you who support the Bowery Boys on Patreon.com, where we've got lots of exclusive bonus audio for you. This week, I'll have my full interview with Regina and Adriana at the Louis Armstrong House. And next week, Tom and I will have another episode of our after-show conversation called The Takeout. But this time, we'll be talking more about Tom's time over at that official podcast for the HBO show. So like a little behind the scenes, if you will. To hear that episode and to help support the Bowery Boys, please visit patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, where you'll be joining brand new patrons, Lisa J from Manhattan, Patrick M from Maryland, and additional patrons, Geneva J, Ashley F, Noreen S, Kristen M, David W, and Donald B. Thank you all for supporting the Barry Boys podcast. And thank you all for listening today. Tom, will be back next episode. We have an architectural-themed episode in store, which we think you'll enjoy. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. 
Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.